as we discussed in our last episode of the clash me and leah did karaoke yesterday with our friend lauren who is the reason for the season of this podcast yes she's the one who did not know who fleetwood mac was correct so we went to go do karaoke and first off so we have a long history of karaoke me and leah we have we used to go to this bar it started at 10 p.m at night was it 10 or it was late it was, it, it was 10, 10 p.m because i remember lauren oh, texted yeah. it to me and i was like holy shit it was that was way too late way way past my bedtime but we would do karaoke there yes and then COVID happened and then that bar closed for tax fraud actually they could have closed for a lot of other reasons folks it closed before covid but it did close because of tax fraud yes and let me tell you i won't get too much into it there should have been some other reasons it closed actually i wouldn't be surprised if the government closed it under the guise of tax fraud there may or may not be a cult coming out of there yes it's fine well that's that's a later discussion point but we came back to karaoke at 7 p.m it was glorious bless this bar incredible and it was more of an outside bar too it was like indoor and outdoor it's very open yeah it was nice and yes we picked back up the reins but it made me think because a lot of the people who sung before and after us chose rock songs which was great i didn't even think that was a possibility for it was <laughs> for karaoke it was great we were the youngest people there so it made me think for our next karaoke bid I already have my song picked out and I and I can say it falls under the rock guys. What karaoke song, despite your range, whether low or high, would you want to sing at karaoke? With that crowd? Yeah, with that crowd. If I could pull it off. I mean, I'll probably do this next time. I'm gonna do Faithfully by Journey. Yeah. They they would get it would be lit in there once you put it or don't stop believing. Yeah. One of the two. It's going down. That'd be good. I think I'm going to do Peace of My Heart from Janis Joplin or uh, the rehab song from yeah, Amy, Amy Winehouse. Winehouse. Yeah, that would go over well with that crowd. Yeah, that's probably what I'm going to do. I, I think Peace of My Heart, only a few are going to get it. Yeah. Only a few, which is a shame. A shame. Damn shame. Listen to our Janis episode. Get yourself educated. Better than that, I'm Bethann. I'm Leah. And this is She Will Rock You. Where are they getting a dub in a CBS executive meeting? No. Bitch, don't touch my thermostat. <laughs> the ghost be like, pull up before I haunt you. Let me turn down the thermostat. This is bad. We're on page one, guys. <laughs> this is She Wiraki. Hello, and welcome to this new episode where I'm going to tell you again about the importance of leaving us an Apple review. Yeah. <laughs> G- give them the lowdown while I finish my PB&J, Leah. Okay. So if you listened, if you're new, welcome. We love you. Please stay around. We promise we're fun. Um, even if we we say fuck a lot. That's part of our charm. <laughs> Sorry. That's what gets us an explicit I don't know. tag on uh, all podcasting networks. I don't know what my fucking brain said. Yeah, eat a PB&J before you record another yeah. episode. It's fine. It's fine. Anyway, continue. Um, so if, 
if you've noticed podcasts usually ask you to leave a review on apple and that's because a they're the only ones that let you leave reviews but also other podcasting networks kind of look to apple as like the authority on hey is this podcast good should we serve it up to our reviewers um so if you are enjoying this podcast and you want other people to find our podcast please leave us a review on google not google please leave us a review on apple podcasts even if you do not actively listen in the apple podcast app just pop over there if you have an apple id either just hit the stars that helps too but actually writing a review is the most beneficial um so we would really appreciate it if you do that and vice versa if you have a spotify account and you don't listen on spotify or you do listen on spotify just hitting that follow button on spotify is also super beneficial that being said, we got a new review this week, and someone have asked us to Beth Ann to read from our friend Lizzie. This podcast, this, this podcast review, uh, we're never breaking routine again. <laughs> the reason why we are so goofy is because our we decided to do mush. business before the meeting. Anyway, <laughs> so this podcast review says, "Love my girls with a heart emoji." Beth Ann and Leah are so knowledgeable with music, and when you listen to this podcast, it is some of the best storytelling I have ever heard. I love She Will Rock You, and I'm a fan for life. These girls deserve so much. Lizzie, we love you. Thank you, Lizzie. You're awesome. So if you want your review read on air, leave us a review. And if you're outside of the U.S. and you leave us a review, please let us know because... Yeah, shoot us a DM. They uh, aren't always easy to find. I'm also running a one-time promotion... That if you leave a review and you DM me, you can either DM the podcast or DM me individually. Preferred DM me individually. If you provide proof you left a review, I will send you a band to be your spirit guide. I've already sent one. Was it to Lizzie? No. Oh, it, oh I do need to send one to Lizzie. Lizzie, I'm going to get on that for you. <laughs> um, I sent it to Morgan. Oh, because <laughs> she left a review a while ago. But oh, said, long she said ago. she wanted one. Okay. So I gave her ABBA. That's that's accurate. So if you would like your own, this is one time promotion, folks. Get your get your spirit guide. Shock about a ding dong favorite rock bands. You know where to go. Oh. You know which DMs to slide in. I swear to you, we have not drunk anything. No, I have had a half of a vanilla Coke and a third of a glass of water. Yeah. Anyway, let's get on to the episode. Um, my notes literally start with, hello, and welcome to another edition of How the Hell Has This Band Survived the Last 50 Years? <laughs> that seems to be a popular category for you. Uh, I like self-destructive bands, apparently. Like, give me Motley Crue and Ozzy and everyone who just like wants to take drugs all the time yeah um there are drug discussions in this episode content warning also they have a literal 50-year history i'm not joking when i say that so there's a lot to cover here not going in super depth um which we're here to give you a taste yes we give you an overview which brings me to my next point of I know that Steven Tyler has done some questionable things in his past when it comes to women. Oh, yeah. And I just want to say we're not going to address those today. We may come back and talk about it in the future if I do a specific Steven Tyler episode. We're not a tabloid. It has nothing to do with the actual history of the band. Do your own research. Come to your own conclusions. 
just here to give you a brief overview of the band. That being said, let's meet the band. Steven Tyler, a.k.a. the Demon of Screamin'. I did not know that was his name. Yes. I swear that could have been Ozzy's name. Yes. Both. Both can share the title. But that's what they call him. Interesting. He's born as Steven Victor Tallarico. Ooh. He's Italian. Ooh. I didn't know Mr. Tallarico shortened it to Tyler. That comes into play. His being Italian comes into play in a minute. Good. He's born on March 26, 1948, which sounds so old, in Manhattan. So he's Italian and a New Yorker. Oh, a New York Italian. You know I love him. (laughs) No, I love him. He's born in Manhattan. His family moved to the Bronx when he was three. His father was a classically trained pianist. Ooh. Like, really good classically trained pianist. Mm -hmm. Somehow he fit an entire grand piano into their little tiny ass Bronx apartment. Yeah. Steven later... In his biography, he vis- revisited his childhood apartment and he was like, I don't know how the hell he fit that guitar. That guitar. Good they God. did it through the window. <laughs> have Even you, that, have well, you seen Hey Arnold where well, they left the piano? Not that, but like they don't know how they lived around it because like it theoretically when he visited it later should have been like up against the wall with no space. Yeah. Because the apartment was tiny. Anyway, so he he likes to say that he spent the first nine years of his life under a piano because he would just lay under there and hear his dad play. That's so sweet. That's where he got the chord progression from Dream On from. Oh. From hearing his dad play. Um, This has nothing to do with the band, but I just need to point out the story that at age 14, Stephen found a pamphlet in the back of a magazine where he ordered a baby raccoon and kept it as a pet for a year in his Bronx apartment. <laughs> Man, there were some questionable ad campaigns the in the amount 50s. Of stuff this man ordered from a magazine when he was a child. <laughs> uh, I didn't put it in here, but now I have to talk about it. So he ordered a like an inductor coil that had an electric charge, and he rigged his room when he was like 17. So when he'd have girls over, he would put this electric charge oh onto his doorknob. So if anyone tried to open his door when he was ah! in there, they get shocked. <laughs> ingenuity but he bought it from the mail ingenuity the yeah <laughs> apparently they didn't believe in locking their doors in this house so he couldn't lock his door to keep his parents out but he could shock what? the shit out of them what is his parents thinking like he's an italian how the fuck is that going over with his mom uh his parents were very chill my mom would break down the damn door <laughs> his parents were super chill to the point where uh they let him smoke weed and they're basically like, don't be stupid and don't get arrested. Yeah. So guess what happened? He got arrested Well, because he bought weed from an undercover cop at school. Yeah. It's like, okay, so he ordered a baby raccoon. We got to finish that story. Kept it as a pet for a year in this very tiny Bronx apartment. And then finally he was like, this is a lot of work. I did not sign up for this. <laughs> so he gives him to a farmer and the farmer keeps him in like a little cage and the raccoon got like super obese and old and then it escaped and then they don't know what happened to it i love a good fat raccoon they're my favorite uh so like i said he got in trouble a lot as a child and his reason he always blamed it and you'll appreciate this he blamed it on the fact that he was italian he was just too italian to sit still and be quiet what First off, who said that Italians don't have a problem with keeping quiet? He did. Well, I mean, he may be right, but you know, 
and I can only speak as an Italian. <laughs> I, th- I thought that was the best excuse. Uh, he also got in trouble a lot because he would get into fights because he got picked on for his appearance because, as he said, he had a tiny pinhead and big lips. And Aww. that's not a look when you're a 14-year-old boy. Yeah. Um, so he lived full-time in the Bronx, but they did. he and his family did summers in Sunapee, New Hampshire, where, interestingly, the entire time that he's going to this this lake in the summer joe perry lives just six miles up the road the entire time they never met really that whole the whole time until they like later they'll they'll meet in a little bit but every summer they were six miles apart from each other and never met uh he actually got his musical start over one of these summers playing drums in his dad's band three nights a week but this was not a rock band keep in mind Dad mm-hmm. is a classically trained pianist. Dad doesn't like rock. Dad's in a jazz band that plays at like this of fancy. Of course, Dad is <laughs> this fancy restaurant. So they're playing Viennese waltzes, and okay, foxtrots, and tunes like "Summertime" from Porgy and Bess. Yeah, let me tell you, I know that Dad. He he's not going to allow rock music. Which is not helping your image if you're a 15-year-old boy. Yeah. He said that like girls would come into this this restaurant with their parents and he would just hide behind the drum no. kit. He'd like, make himself as small as possible. <laughs> Which is hard to do for him. Yeah. Because he's so tall. Uh, so, like I said, not a rock band. But he's listening to rock music nonstop because he lives in New York City. So like yeah. these artists are coming through there on tours. Right. Uh, and his two biggest inspirations were the Rolling Stones and Janis Joplin. Oh, this man went to Woodstock and saw Janis at Woodstock. He went to Woodstock yeah. just as a patron. Yeah. Wow. He said that that, that was like one of his life changing moments was seeing Janis on stage at Woodstock. That's yeah. where he gets his, um, his like inspo for fashion with his scarves and yeah, his garments. Okay. I can see that. And that's a big deal. If like, cause Janice says that performance was not good. She doesn't like that performance. It was life changing for Steven Tyler. I know. Well, that he just was, shows how good Janice of a musician. I mean, as an artist, she he was is. also stoned out of his fucking mind. Well, they were on the acid, the brown acid. No, the brown acid wasn't good. I don't think he knew what he was on at Woodstock. Probably not hearing his or reading his description. Um, but he really loved uh, so he loved Janice because of the soul and the past soul and passion she puts into each performance. He yeah. saw her at least twice live, which is a lot considering how short her career was. Yeah. Um, I was going, Oh, he was, so he was really loved like passionate music. He even way back then recognized that like all music could be traced back to black music and was really into black music in New York city. Yeah. Um, which I think reflects in his performance today. So he finally gets to the point where he's like, I am done being in my dad's jazz band. Go start my own band, which he names the strangers. Yeah. With, which is spelled S T R A N G E U R S. Trying to make it different. I don't like it. No, but the only thing that really notable about the strangers is they got to open for the beach boys in 1966. Oh, that's neat. They won some kind of, contest and they got to open for the beach boys which he was really into the beach boys too especially um the pet sounds album Mm -hmm. so then he that didn't last very long he cycles through some bands eventually strangers changes their name and becomes chain reaction which is better but Mm -hmm. not great 
Um, and that band, Chain Reaction, attracts the attention of local kids, Joe Perry and Tom Hamilton. Here they come. Who were, they were like groupies of Chain Reaction as much as a band of that small can have groupies. Mm-hmm. And they would follow him around, but they were too young at the time to get into the bars that Steven was playing at. No. So they would just stand outside and wait for him to come out. Oh, with their little sign saying, we love Steven. Basically. That's cute. So let us meet tom and joe tom eventually becomes the bassist for aerosmith weirdly he's probably my favorite member of aerosmith Ooh, gave him some bass guitar some love he's just he's funny in interviews he's hilarious and we'll get to this but when i saw them live he's just like the friendliest one he's just like hi because no one's paying attention to the bass player but he's so friendly i love that um i don't have much to share about him at this point in his life he's originally from colorado springs he learned guitar from his brother. His brother first learned guitar when Tom was four. So he like grew up watching his older brother and idolizing him. So at age 12, Scott decides, you know, Tom, it's time for you to learn guitar. Teaches him his first chords. And then at 14, much like every bass player we've ever encountered, Tom switches to bass when he wants to join a local band because yep. that was the open position. That is the key. You want to, honestly, you have a better chance of getting successful as a bass guitarist than a guitarist. You're not wrong. Joe Perry, he is a Massachusetts native, mm. uh, which we'll see the band eventually forms in Boston. He grew up wanting to be a marine biologist because he loved the ocean so much. Aww. But he knew his grades weren't good enough to get into college. Um, turns out he wasn't a bad student he just had undiagnosed adhd the entire time yeah and wasn't actually this like disciplinary problem that his teachers made him out to be um so he knew by like middle school that he he wasn't going to be a marine biologist and he took up the guitar at the age of 10 and he plays right-handed even though he's left-handed so he learned backwards from his natural Interesting. which is way easier as a guitarist to find a guitar that's made for you yeah it's like a don't blame him um i just thought that was interesting yeah. i can't imagine how hard that would be to learn backwards from your dominant hand yeah that is weird you don't find many left-handed people i think that's what tony yami did from black sabbath i mean it makes sense. i feel like because he had to because he got part of his finger chopped off oh yeah that makes sense uh, while he was in school, he heard the Yardbirds for the first time. Ooh, Jimmy Page. And uh, yeah, and decided, well, I'm not going to be a marine biologist. I'm going to be in a rock band. There you go. So on top of uh, Yardbirds, he was a huge fan of early Fleetwood Mac, specifically the Peter Green era. And Ooh. occasionally they will still cover Stop Messing Around and Rattlesnake Shake in Aerosmith sets. Interesting. He's really into early Fleetwood Mac. Uh, Joe Perry, he's rated the 84th in Rolling Stones list of 100 greatest guitarists of all time. Not super far up there, but he's there. Mm-hmm. And he also has his solo band at the same time that Steven is in the Chain Reaction. He's in a band with Tom Hamilton called the Joe Perry Project. That's oh, cute. so sorry, Joe Perry Jam Band, which would later become the Joe per- Perry Project. We'll get to that in the story. And currently, on top of being in Aerosmith and in the Joe Perry Project, he's also part of an all-star band 
called Hollywood Vampires with Alice Cooper and Johnny Depp. I love that. Now I need to listen to that. Yeah, you should. Really quickly to introduce the other two members of the OG Aerosmith lineup. We got Joey Kramer on drums. Not much to tell you about him. He's born and raised in the Bronx. Briefly attended Berklee College of Music. And my favorite quote in the documentary I watched was, I'm not a technical player. I don't do anything fancy. I just play what I feel. (laughs) And Brad Whitford, he's not in the band for an entirely long time. Mm -hmm. All I can really tell you is he also went to Berkeley. Yeah, that works. So back to our timeline. It's 1964. Stevens and Chain Reaction. They're in Yonkers playing. Meanwhile, Joe Perry and Tom Hamilton have formed Joe Perry's Jam Band. Mm-hmm. And they're hanging out in Boston, but they learn about this chain reaction band and start following around. At the same time, Joe and Tom meet Joey Kramer, the drummer in Yonkers. And Kramer knew Steven Tyler and had like, so cute. The three of them, Joe, Tom, and Joey, were all like fanboys of Steven's before they actually met him. Like their goal was to be in a band with Steven Tyler. No. Um, and things happen and Chain Reaction and the jam band end up playing at the same gig mm-hmm. in New York. And so Steven was like, I really like this jam band thing that you guys happening have going on here. Let's put the two bands together, Chain Reaction and Jam Band. And so some, some time passes and they meet up and they think about it. And, uh, in Chain Reaction, Steven Tyler wasn't the lead singer. He was just the drummer and the backup vocalist. Hmm. Which is weird. Yeah. And it's weird they had so many fanboys not being the lead singer. Weird. But his dream was to be a lead singer and have that like Janice energy. Yeah. And so he was like, okay, if we make this new band, I am not playing drums. Mm -hmm. Like I'm only going to be a part of this band if I can be the front man and lead vocalist. And the others were like, fuck, let's do it. And so the band was formed. Wow. They don't have a name at this point, though. They're just... They're Chain just, Reaction Jam Band. Th- yeah. That's, Remnants of That's it. what they're doing. And so they moved to Boston, where reportedly they spent their entire afternoons every day getting high and watching Three Stooges rerun. <laughs> a, a perfect afternoon in New York, if you will. Uh, Boston. Oh, Boston. I'm sorry. Just as... That works just it as still well. still works. And so one day they were... They like watched their studios reruns and they were like guys we really need to name our band and they like just literally sitting at the kitchen table and so joey kramer was like i don't know what about this thing like when i was in school i would write this word on my notebook called it would just be aerosmith not like a-r-r-o-w smith but a-e-r-o smith and he's like i thought of it after listening to the harry nelson album aerial ballet i don't really understand how he got to that point yeah but the band was like uh, uh, and then they thought on it for a while and then they eventually chose it from their list which included alternative band names the hookers oh my god and spike jones oh like like uh mick jones <laughs> spike jones so, yeah, they chose the best name of those three. I mean, I agree. That is the best name out of the three. I'm just still curious why this kid was just writing Aerosmith randomly in his journal. I really school. don't get it. 
I guess so the aerial ballet takes place in the air. It says the jacket art was a circus performer jumping out of a biplane. I still don't get it. Okay. I feel like weed was involved. Yeah. Either way. There's something stronger than weed happening there, Leah, to get to Aerosmith well, from he an was, aerial ba- ballet. He was in high school when he did that. So I'm hoping he was only doing mm. weed. I don't know much about his history. Anyway, in 1971, they meet Brad Whitford, who would become the rhythm guitarist, and lineup has remained mostly the same ever since, other than a brief period of July 1979 to April 1984. We'll get there. So, pretty much immediately after this band is formed, like I said, they were getting high, mm-hmm. watching Three Stooges, but they weren't just smoking marijuana like they were before the band started. To quote Tom Hamilton in the VH1 special I watched, Joe and Steven experimented with drugs. And when I say experiments, I don't mean they just tried to get a little fucked up. They experimented. And the experiment was a success. (laughs) (laughs) But I love Tom Hamilton. Um, So, like, I mean, they were... I don't even know how to describe to you how messed up they were getting. These guys aren't signed yet. They have no money. I don't know where they're getting their What drugs. are they even doing with their lives besides getting... Are they even rehearsing at this well, point? That's literally my next bullet point. No matter how fucked up they were, they were still rehearsing 16 hours a day. Holy shit. And the band didn't like it at the time. It was Steven who made them do these rehearsals. He was like, we got to get our show tight. We got to get our music tight. We got to figure out what the hell we're doing. And the band's like, we're just going to play music. But looking back, they were like, you know, Steven really whipped us into shape. He taught us how to rehearse, which I can only assume he learned from his classically trained father of like, you have to practice. You have to learn your music. It has to be tight. Most musicians, minimum four hours. Yeah. Um, Which the other boys at this point, before they met Steven, we're not doing. So it obviously pays off because in 1972, they signed with Columbia records for reported $125,000 and they released their debut album, Aerosmith in January, 1973. And this album was pretty straightforward. It's like rock and roll with a blues influence. And that kind of it's their sound is, is there, but it's not quite, fully fledged yet they grow into it yeah but it it pretty much sets the tone for the rest of their stuff this album surprisingly enough contains dream on really yes on their debut album does that mean they just redid it they do re-release it later um at the time it peaked at number 56 on the billboard top 100 and steven tyler wrote the song when he was 17 wow which i think is insane that's crazy um he wrote this over one of his summers at lake centipede he was it was like the end of summer he didn't want to go home he just felt really sad he didn't know what he'd want to do with his life and so he just like sat down had this chord progression in his head from hearing his dad play and was like i'm gonna dream about being in a band that makes it big until it does Mm -hmm. and i mean it happened eventually it doesn't happen for a while but so they, 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 I don't know where I'm going with that thought. So he wrote that 17 and I mean, that's like probably the second best known Aerosmith song. We'll talk about the first, uh, later, but 17 years old, who knew they tour for this album for a while. Um, it doesn't 
it's not big because they're not big yet yeah and but their label is just like hey you do get to do a second album it's got to do better than the first one or we're cutting you i never really understood record companies then because they're like all right here you go make your best album first one let's go and it's like we know from history bands don't really get their footing to like the third third or fourth or fifth yeah like it can take some time and so in fall 1973 they lock themselves in a studio with an endless supply of cocaine here we go because it is 1973 and drugs were so acceptable that the labels would literally bury coke budgets in their album budgets because they wanted this album done no matter what if they have to buy you a quarter of a million dollars in cocaine to make it happen you better make their money back but you can have it that's it would be hidden in the budget under some like well that's what they did for fleetwood yeah gave them like for i think it was their third album they're like all right here you go tons of coke there you go well they got the album done and they released their second album called get your wings in 1974 this one is a little darker than their first um includes like set list staples that they play now uh seasons of wither and lord of the thighs and they start to like gain in popularity like they're going somewhere they're not quite there yet but they're going somewhere but just as they're getting their first taste of success the band starts fighting Uh and keep in mind joe and steven are not good for each other in the fact that they're great musically together but they become known as the toxic twins because they have to outdo each other every time they're drinking they're out drinking each other mm-hmm. if they're doing drugs one has to get more fucked up than the other one like they just can't be around each other yeah it's to not this, a good pairing to this day they still fight like there's still tension there they're just they're they're toxic for each other yeah but they make great music together so joe starts spending less and less time with the band because he's dating this girl named Alyssa, who is fucking gorgeous by the way like i don't blame him for Mm. leaving the band to go hang out with her um and they just they're always like joe you're missing rehearsal come back and steven starts picking at him which he says looking back it was just really jealousy because joe was getting laid and he wasn't (laughs) um because he was single at the time and so they just fight all the time and the fight is what inspires the lyrics for sweet emotion oh because steven was jealous of of joe having Alyssa, and he wanted to date Alyssa. which interestingly enough comes at first top 40 hit so in 1975 while they're all fighting and all you know pissed at each other and Mm -hmm. still doing lots of drugs they released their third album one of their better known ones toys in the attic which kind of just propels them to this led zeppelin and rolling stone level fame they are thrown into the limelight the album is described as brash and decadent, like Aerosmith themselves. Ah, oh, that's a that's a lovely. I love that word line. salad. I don't normally include like critic snippets, but I like that one. Um, the album was recorded in a very sleazy studio in Times Square, <laughs> which I like that. And this is the album that kind of like they cut their teeth on, I guess. Um, up until this point. Steven Tyler is seen as a Mick Jagger knockoff to the point where Steven would sometimes, if he knew the Rolling Stones were in town, would go stand outside the theater and pretend to be Mick Jagger. Ah! 
<laughs> like that's he, perfect. He would put on. A, he said he would put on a really thick Cockney accent and just like start spewing British nonsense. Like, hey uh, governor, you ready for a cup of tea? Like it would be really bad. And uh, the fangirls would start crying and be like, "I love you, Mick." And I'm like, "Y'all are not good fangirls if you can't recognize your boy." Yeah, I could see like a slight, a slight similarity. They didn't really even have the same haircut at this point, but whatever. They kind of the same build. Kind of. Kind of. Um, but I mean, the the press is calling him a knockoff Mick so much, and it bothers Stephen because Mick is one of his like heroes. He idolizes Mick Jagger. Yeah. But in interviews, he has to be like, I don't, I don't like the Rolling Stones. Like, I don't like Mick Jagger. Please stop making that comparison. Yeah. But you know, now that he's grown up and matured, he's now like, fuck yeah, I love Mick Jagger. Thank you for comparing him me to him. Yeah. But at the time, you c- you couldn't do it. He did not like it. All that to say, Toys in the Attic showed that Aerosmith was unique and talented and was not just a rip-off Rolling Stones like everyone thought they were becoming. This is when they re-released Dream On, which then hits number six. Did they re-record it too? I don't think so. Or that's the original version of it? It just says they re-released it. So I don't know if they touched it up or not. It was not relevant to this section of the story, so I didn't didn't really care to dig into it but um they released that goes number six they immediately released walk this way right after that which music was lit during this time yeah and walk this way was one of the last songs they wrote for the album like literally last song they wrote they needed like two more songs they were like i don't know we're burnt out they're they're in the studio in Times square and they were like you know we need to come up with something and they based it off of a riff that Joe would play during soundcheck. And then they kind of had this loose song structure. And then they were like, I don't, I don't know what to write lyrics about. Like we're tapped out this album. We're never going to finish it. And so their manager was like, Hey, let's just take a night to chill. Let's mm-hmm. go watch a movie. So they go and watch young Frankenstein and in young Frankenstein, the little hunchback guy goes, walk this way oh that's where they get it and a light bulb clicked steven came back to the studio and wrote the whole song in two hours wow this may be in your outline but i'm curious because you know Liv tyler we're getting there like okay very soon okay i ain't gonna touch it then go ahead 1976 could be described as the bad boys from Boston meet lots of girls, lots of cocaine, lots of vodka, and get rewarded for being irresponsible. Ooh. And that's a direct quote from the VH1 special. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a good quote, so I had to put it in. So in 1976, they released their fourth album, Rocks. So it's Aerosmith Rocks. Okay. I like it, but I don't like it at the same time. And this would go on to sell over 4 million copies both this and toys in the attic are considered like their their pinnacle albums they're both on the 500 greatest albums of all time they were influential in like baby guns and roses and metallica and motley Crue when they were coming up they would they would idolize these records mm-hmm. and um kurt cobain would actually list rocks as one of his biggest influences well, in nirvana sound okay around this time steven starts dating a model named bb buell who he dumped while on tour in Germany. Like I said, not not a great history with women. I just included this because this is Liv's mom. Oh, okay. Um, so right after he dumped her, she found out she was pregnant. 
and she wasn't a hundred percent sure that the baby was Steven's or this other guy named Todd. And she didn't really want to go back to Steven because he dumped her while in Germany mm-hmm. while on tour. And so Todd and BB just decided that they would just accept that Liv was Todd's daughter and raise baby Liv together, which is fine because honestly, Steven was not in a good place to be a dad at this point. Yeah. He does come back into her life later. She is his biological child, but wild. I didn't know that. Yeah. Like for the first several years of her life, BB just pretended that Todd was her dad. It's really not relevant to the band, but I wanted to put that in there. 1977, they released their fifth album, Draw the Line. If you've been keeping track with the years, this is like an album a year. Yeah. If not more. And things get really, really bad for the band. Like I said, um, Steven is not in a place to be a dad. He's not really in a place to be in a band either. The The band is touring nonstop. And how do you keep going on a tour? Cocaine. You do cocaine. They, Steven and, uh, this is when Steven and Joe get their nickname of the Toxic Twins. Because they just, they're bad for each other they're bad for themselves like there's just i cannot even describe to you the amount of drugs that are being taken on this tour um steven at one point told joe i've spent 64 million dollars on drugs and excuse me how much 64 million is is it inflated when he gave that number like don't go back and look i don't think so so 1970 we're talking 1970s money yes 64 million 64 million oh my god joe perry says there is no fucking way in the world you could spend that much money on drugs and be alive and yeah steven's like i mean yeah and that's where most of the band's money was going at the time so they're also broke it's love a lovely time that is insane so in 1979 they start to work on their next album which is called Night in the Ruts, which is a terrible album name. Yeah, I don't like that. So they go on tour. They get like a, a little mini break in the recording schedule. And just as things are starting to wrap up, the drug use just like comes to a head. The band hates each other. Well, Joe and Tyler, Joe mm-hmm. and Steven hate each other. And everything explodes over a literal glass of milk. Are you ready for this? They're at Cleveland Stadium on July 28th, 1979, where they headlined the World Series of Rock Festival. Joe Perry's now wife, Alyssa, the girlfriend that caused all the drama, threw a glass of milk at Tom Hamilton's wife, Terry. Okay. I don't really know why. They were just fighting as band wives do. Milk is an interesting choice on a rock tour. Yeah, but every... It's definitely a glass of milk. It was not a glass of anything else because every... Beer makes sense milk water bottle would even make sense but milk so after the show steven confronts joe about like what the fuck was your wife doing why is she throwing a glass of milk at tom's wife like this is not okay we can't have behavior like this and they're just fighting you know you know how bands fight they're fighting about everything and, and nothing at the same time yeah and so joe says bye i'm leaving although in Steven's account in his autobiography, he fired Joe. One of the two things happened. Either way, mm-hmm. Joe's gone. So Joe takes some of the music that he wrote with him, actually, 
They don't get to record it for the album uh, and forms his own band, the Joe Perry Project. He's back. Bye-bye, Joe. So they promote Brad to lead guitar and they have him fill in. But the album comes out in November 1979 and it did okay. Mm -hmm. Like, really, it wasn't bad. Like, it didn't tank, but it wasn't great either. So at this point, they're missing Joe. They're falling very quickly in popularity because their bluesy era of the 70s is kind of over. We're ending the 80s now. We're into like... We're going stadium. Yeah, we're going stadium tours. Synths are in, you know. And Steven Tyler is fucking stoned all of the time. So he actually hits rock bottom in 1980 where he just collapses on stage during a show and didn't get up for the rest of the set. Like, they cut did, the show Did early. they just keep playing? I was they, about to say. They kept playing from the way that the, the guy, that their tech guy that they interviewed in this special, they, like, finished a song, and he was basically like, oh, he's not getting up this time. I guess we should end the show now, huh? Like, he fell behind a monitor, and the audience couldn't really even see him. And Tom Hamilton's literally over there, like, kicking him, like, get up, man, get up. And he doesn't get up. I mean, he's... Oh, jeez. He's bad. So he doesn't go to rehab, because why would he? It's Mm -hmm. 1980. That fall, he gets in a really bad motorcycle accident. He's in the hospital for two months, unable to tour or record. Um, Everything's, like, on hiatus until 1981. In 1981, they start their next album, appropriately named rock in a hard place um and then Fitting. brad whitford leads the band so they have no guitarist have no, yeah i was about to say they have no guitarist <laughs> no no well, that's gonna be a problem for the bass player and drums so he just like goes off and forms a duet with this other guy who's not important they record an album it does not do well at all so joe uh brad whitford leaves his duo that he started and just joins back up with the Joe Perry project. (laughs) It's all coming full circle. So backup, backup guitarist. So like the new guy they found when Joe left to take Brad's spot gets promoted to lead guitar. (laughs) His name is Rick DeFay. He plays lead guitar for rock in a hard place, which comes out on August 27th, 1982. It reaches number 32 on the Billboard charts, which is actually pretty good. Like 32 is up there, Mm -hmm. but something's happening just in the music scene and they're having to play in smaller and smaller venues where like three years prior they were highlighting stadiums. They're now back on the theater and club circuit. And like, even those shows aren't selling out to maximum capacity. So the band's playing a homecoming show in Worcester, Massachusetts. And, Things start to become amended, I guess, between Joe and Steven. They, their way of, you know, amending things is that they reunite backstage before the show and get high. It's like a, it's like a peace treaty. Yep. Peace treaty of drugs. Once again, Steven got so messed up that he passed out on stage and like before he could not get up. So they cancel another set. I don't even know what happened. Um, they they reunite, but at this point, Joe doesn't come back to the band. But around this time, after the show, like, things are better between Joe and Steven. They're talking again. And Steven meets his wife, Teresa, 
who he says pretty much stopped him from killing himself with his drug habit. Like he was so messed up. 64 he, million of drugs will do it. He needed like a mom wife basically who's like, stop doing this to yourself. Get yourself fixed. You can do better than this. So shout out to Teresa. I'm pretty sure they're still married. That's nice. Meanwhile, Joe is also equally as fucked up and he misses his old bandmates. So on February 14th, 1984, Joe Perry and Brad Whitford come to an Aerosmith show in Boston at the Orpheum Theater. And shortly after, they start to negotiate the reintegration of the two bands. And several months later, the original crew of Aerosmith is officially reunited. That's nice. And in his autobiography, Stephen says, you should have felt the buzz at the moment all five of us got back together in the same room for the first time again. We started laughing and it was just like the five years had never passed. We knew we made the right move. So there's something about the five of these guys being together. Like it's just perfect chemistry. So they reunite. The gang is back together. Mm -hmm. They go on a tour accurately called the back in the saddle tour they continue to do drugs That's sweet well yeah you know and like it's still a problem but it's not a problem to the point where steven's falling off the stage still so like at this point they're signed to geffen records and the band's like uh, records like you know what do whatever the fuck you want just make a comeback record because mm-hmm. the gang's back together and so they released an album in 1985 called done with mirrors still a dumb name they're banned they're uh i don't like any of these album names their album titles are terrible i will admit that i'm not a fan and this album did not do great at all it it only reached gold um they're they're not hitting their previous level of success but then in 1986 steven tyler and joe perry appear on run dmc's cover of walk this way Oh, one of the first tracks to blend rock and hip hop. It hit number four in the Billboard Top 100, Hot 100. And they're in the music video, Joe and Steven are. Yeah. With Run DMC, which this is the MTV generation. That video was running pretty much all the time. And so Aerosmith's career gets like a kickstart and a whole new generation is in love with their music, which is cool but they're still doing drugs. <laughs> it's not going away. And so yeah. finally, in 1986, Steven goes to rehab because he gets an intervention by the rest of the band, a doctor, and his manager, Tim Collins. Yeah. He ain't going to make it much longer. Who basically were like, Steven, if you do not go to rehab, there will be no Aerosmith because you will die. Mm-hmm. And it kind of scares him into going to rehab. Um, the rest of the band will also go to rehab over the next couple of years. Like the yeah, band phase, gets phase in. pretty clean. Um, you'll Steven does have to go back to rehab at one point, but for the most part, the band gets clean. Like it is nowhere near like it was in the band's tell autobiography. They're Tom, they're Tom, they're their Tom. manager, Tom in the band's tell autobiography. Their manager, Tom said that he told the band, uh, in that September of 1986, that if they would go to drug rehab and get clean, he promised them that he could make Aerosmith the biggest band in the world by 1990. That's a big promise. That's, yeah, I was about to say. Big promise, sir. And especially because they got to get clean first. And they got to get clean, but yeah. then like, you can't just make, you could be the best manager in the world. You can't just make 
someone you're not making the music best band but whatever so they go to rehab in august 1987 they release permanent vacation probably the only good album title that they have (laughs) and it becomes their best-selling album in over a decade um they have three hot 100 singles dude looks like a lady angel and ragdoll uh this is steven says in his autobiography that this album was the first one we ever did sober Uh, it's amazing how that could change it uh yeah you can actually still make good music without cocaine they went on a tour with guns and roses that's kind of cool it's kind of it was kind of like a dream come true for guns and roses to open for aerosmith because they saw aerosmith as one of their biggest influences which is cool they were also on the same label at the same time and it became a very it was a very weird tour because aerosmith is all sober and fresh out of rehab and guns and roses is not yeah i was about to say that's that's a dichotomy for sure they um they're pretty much in where aerosmith was like three years prior they are fucked up all the time aerosmith they are cranking out albums all the time they release another album called pump in september 1989 i hate that i don't like it at all but i love this album because it has love in an elevator what it takes and janie's got a gun which is probably my i like that song favorite aerosmith that's song. a great song and this is where we're going to sidebar about Janie for a second. Uh, Tyler said that he came up with the title and the melody before he really had like lyrics to go with it. Like he mm-hmm. just had a, a shell of a song. And it took him nine months to finish the lyrics. He just like couldn't find the right topic. It's a very also, it's a different chord structure. Yeah, it's a than very. the rest of their songs. It's a very weird song. Um, but he read a Newsweek article on gunshot victims and decided to like make a song about child abuse and incest basically oh fun uh but he he, like they kind of just made it it was a single but it was also kind of an album filler like he never thought it was gonna go anywhere like it was a song that he wrote just Mm -hmm. like a bunch of other songs when the song came out as a single he like was flooded with letters that he got from fans who had been abused or neglected um and like they really spoke to him and the song spoke to those women and so he was inspired to do something about it and so in 2015, he founded Janie's Fund, which provides resources to abused and neglected women and helps them get out of their situation and like start new lives, which I think is super cool. Yeah, that is great. Good guy. That's like some good points for Steven. This song actually won the band its first Grammy and the music video won two VMAs, which looking at the music video with a 2020 lens, it is not a good video it's very it's not even like it's not bad in the sense of like because it's about rape and stuff it's just not a good video (laughs) it's very dark it's like very i think i've seen it isn't it like really like it's like a dark contrast like almost like it's like she's like chilling you can't yeah you can't really tell what's going on because it's so fucking dark yeah not shot well but good storytelling i guess and it's also on the list of Rolling Stone's 100 Greatest Music Videos of All Time. Hmm. This album will become the fourth best-selling album of 1990. So they're they're climbing. Like, yeah. They're not the best band in the world, but they're the fourth best band in the world by 1990. So That's Tom wasn't... He, he almost got there. He wasn't that far off. So to support this album, they go on a year-long tour, which for some fucking reason includes a Wayne's World sketch on SNL. 
Yes. In which the band debates the fall of communism and the Soviet Union. Yes. This, oh. this skit also includes Tom Hanks playing an Aerosmith roadie named Barry, who is Garth's cousin. Ah. Yes. I'm going to make you watch this. After. I need to watch it. Um, it's considered, I don't know who considers it this, but according to Wikipedia, it's considered one of the best moments to ever happen on SNL. It was fine. It's Tom Hanks as roadie. That's the best part. I hate, personally, I hate the Wayne's World sketches. I don't, I just don't like them. They're not my Have brand of humor. Have you seen the movie? No. What? The movies are way better than sketches. The, the sketches are just awkward. Like, I don't know. This one, this particular one is also just awkward. You have to watch it, but whatever whoever voted it the best thing at snl cool yeah we've reached 1992 <laughs> the band takes a little bit of a break to record their follow-up album to pump which is get a grip which has if you watch my tiktok that i posted to the uh to our tiktok it has a cow udder with a piercing on it that's the album cover i don't like that Neither did animal rights groups. Yeah, I can imagine they're having an issue. They had to release a statement that was basically like, this is a photoshopped image. We didn't actually pierce a cow's udder <laughs> because people were concerned about that. This was their most successful album ever. Um, and it turned out, like, came out after the fact that they brought in a bunch of professional songwriting collaborators to help Boo. the songs get more commercial appeal. Which, of course, got the McKees selling out. commercial appeal. So... Boo. Meh, take that as you will. Um, they also, at this time, were doing a bunch of things to appeal to the youths of America. Mm-hmm. Including the band, I guess, because they were so inspired by their SNL appearance with Wayne's World. They are in the movie Wayne's World 2. Yeah, they are. That's they, right. They actually perform two songs. And they let their music be used in video games revolution x and the quest for fame i have no clue what those games are they performed at woodstock 94 they let their song deuces are wild be used in the beavis and butthead experience i hate beavis and bust i do too every fiber i hate humor like that i hate it and i hate that they let their song be used in there um they also opened their own club in boston called the mama kin music hall that's kind of cool we're going to skip some years now to 1997 because I still have two pages left and they just did a lot. Okay. (laughs) In 1997, they released nine lives, which is probably the best album art of all of their albums. It's a cat on like one of those spinny circusy wheels that they throw knives at, you know what I'm talking about? It's cat nine lives. It's fine. Um, It did. Okay. It did win two Grammys, but didn't do great commercially. They toured this album for almost two years and the tour didn't go great because a lot of just bad things happened to the band members. Steven Tyler injured his leg during a performance one night and like had to, they had to cancel a couple shows because mm-hmm. of it. And Joey Kramer somehow got second degree burns when his car caught fire at a gas station, Ooh. which is terrifying. Yeah. And I don't like that. But despite all these setbacks, they were able to record and release the single Don't Want to Mess a Thing from the upcoming movie Armageddon starring Liv Tyler. <laughs> oh, that's a... So wait, hold on. Things come full circle with Liv. Was she already pursuing becoming an actress without her dad's name attached to her? I don't know. I, For the purpose of this outline, did not dig much into Liv Tyler. 
by this point he knew that he was her father yeah so she did have some hollywood connections but i don't know we'll, mm-hmm. we'll, we can do another episode on steven and Liv at some point but um this became their first and only number one single which is Interesting. why <laughs> yeah it's it's fine it's like, an okay song it's fine in middle school dances it's exactly what it is that was the first it was the first song that zach and i danced to at prom fun Aww. fact um and but that once again this is like their third iteration of introducing aerosmith to a new generation of fans mm-hmm. so on this album get a grip there's a song called pink which i'm just gonna completely sidebar and we're going to go down a QAnon rabbit hole for a second. Yeah. Here we go. So I did a TikTok about this album literally yesterday. The album came out on April 20th, uh, 1993. And so I like went down the Aerosmith tag on TikTok. Mm-hmm. And I started reading comments because because it's TikTok and people can't just like let you say something. They have to fight with you about it. Mm-hmm. And I noticed on several of the more popular Aerosmith videos... There was multiple people coming on and commenting about the song Pink being about adrenochrome. And I was like, what the fuck is adrenochrome? Yeah. And so the comments, like the creators would comment back and be like, no, that's a debunked QAnon conspiracy. And I was like, well, now I really got to know what this is. So the song Pink, the video, I will wholeheartedly say it is the weirdest fucking music video I've ever seen in my entire life. And first, I got a sidebar and show you this video because. Okay. No. <laughs> so, literally, the, they're pulling the rabbit from QAnon. No, that's not even what we're getting at. Okay. So, this music video is it's just trippy because if I'll put it in the show notes, it's a bunch of like dominatrixes. Uh, I guess it's the plural dominatrix. Yeah. And like. The song is about sex, okay? It's pink. They're talking about pink things. Janelle Monet did a better, but continue. But for some unexplicable reason, Steven Tyler is like shrunk and wearing rabbit ears. Don't understand. The rabbit is not where we go down the QAnon rabbit hole. Okay. So everyone's like the song pink, but I know from the video that this is about adrenochrome. So adrenochrome is a chemical compound usually found as a light pink solution that forms from the stress hormone. It is not approved for medical use by the FDA, as you can imagine. Yeah. Uh, But you can, researchers specifically, can buy vials of it for $55, which is very cheap, I I feel like. Mm -hmm. Um, And it can be prescribed in specific countries, not in the U.S., to treat blood clotting. Okay. So where does QAnon come in? Yeah. For conspiracy theorists, adrenochrome represents a mystical psychedelic compound (sighs) favored by the global elites or for use in drug crazed satanic rites. And how do you get this? You derive, it's derived from the torturing of children to to harvest their oxidized fear. A real life version. Is this Monsters Inc? A real life version of Monsters Inc. So conspiracy theorists like to say that this is the elite's favorite drug and that has psychedelic properties and it okay. gives you this like crazy high. I'm going to plug this because we just talked about Q because you're fucking nuts. 
please go watch Q the QHBO Max. Um, I think it's Into the Rabbit Hole is what it's called. Please go watch it because you will see who Q actually is. And you will see, I'm going to spoil it for you, this shit was all made up. Yes. In case you did not know. Yes. It was all made up. So, like I said, this is a conspiracy. People out here. Oh, so, uh, researchers who can, like, actually are the ones who can buy the drugs did test to see if it would have, psych- like, psychedelic properties. It does not. Yeah. It's just a hormone. Well, when you were describing it, I was like, oh, this sounds like a normal medicine. Nope. Not normal, but it's not approved. It's, but it's a hormone. Yeah. So, all that to say, people are out here spreading the insane rumor that Aerosmith was taking adrenochrome back in the 90s before QAnon was even a thing and before we supposedly had lizard people and the Hollywood elite. Well, that's why that's why he wore the rabbit ears, yes. don't you see? Um, so, if, if you have half of a brain cell and listen to this song, it is very clearly about sex, like very clearly about sex yeah um and it is the weirdest fucking music video you'll ever see in your life that's all it is it's not a conspiracy if you see it on tiktok and you that's wild want to dig into it that's all there is to it it's fake it's a hoax it's not about illegal psychedelic substances it's just about sex very random sidebar but apparently people are spreading these rumors and i'll put a stop to that yeah uh back to the band timeline in 1999 aerosmith was chosen to be featured in the new rock and roller coaster starring aerosmith yes at disney's hollywood i was waiting for this to come up 99 we only have so much more time with it though i know i there's many petitions to change the overlay of rock and roller coaster and to those people i say leave my fucking coaster alone (laughs) listen when I was, I think I was fourth grade or not fourth grade. I think it was when I was 12. Yeah, I was 12. And I went on that for the first time and you go that zero to 60. It'll in scare you. Two seconds. Best experience of my life as a kid. Um, There's also some TikToks under the Aerosmith tag of rock and roller coaster with the lights off. I mean, yeah, on. lights on. It's a lot of track in there and you are very close to it when you're going. Oh, well, I kind of thought so because like, you know how they added the, um, I don't think they had this when it first opened, but then they added like different traffic signs and things like that that are like somewhat light up. If you look, you can kind of oh, see. Yeah. It's scary in there with the lights on. Yeah. Um, I also didn't know that there was, they opened the one at Disney Hollywood Studios in Florida, but also there used to be one in Disneyland Paris. I did not know that. It's now closed to make way for Avengers Campus, but yeah. Which is going to be tight. I'm very excited. I know. I'm very excited for that. But yeah, I feel like our days with Rock and Roller Coaster are limited. Uh, I know. Last time I was there, which have been two years ago now, they they don't sell any Aerosmith merch in the gift shop anymore. So. Yeah. It's on its way out. I feel very sad about it. Yeah. But I still have my Disney pin from from the ride and the coaster spins on a little circle. That's cute. I have one that's a guitar pick. Oh, nice. Not that exciting. Um, in 2001, they co-headlined the Super Bowl halftime show with NSYNC. And the show is titled The Kings of Rock and Pop. And it is honestly, it is one of the worst Super Bowl shows ever. Yeah. Aerosmith is fantastic. But they do this weird thing where it's bouncing back and forth between Aerosmith playing snippets of their songs and NSYNC like dancing and 
singing to their songs, but in sync, I guess either they're just that bad live or they couldn't hear in their in-ears because they do not sound good at yeah. all. I also don't know why they have to have both. No, Aerosmith. I hate shows like that. Like they did it with uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers and Bruno Mars. Yeah. I, think. I love Bruno Mars separately. I love Red Hot Chili Peppers separately. I do not like them together. We don't need that. I'm going to make you watch the video after this because it is it's bad. Like it is cringy. Um, and it's also just peak 2001 fashion. Like it is not good yeah um the performance ended with nsync britney spears mary j blige nelly and aerosmith all mm. performing walk this way and it's it's bad it is so bad so yeah no matter who they ever get again we're never going to top the atrocity that was that yeah. i hope in 2001 that same year which is probably why they chose them they got inducted to the rock hall of fame and we just get into a weird era of aerosmith in 2002 they cut for the first Tobey Maguire Spider-Man, they came out with the cover of the theme, like the Spider-Man. Yeah. There's an Aerosmith version. Really? Of for Yeah, hold on. I just think of the Nickelback Saliva version, which was a great song, and I listened to it all the time as a kid. I don't like it. You can cut all that out, but... <laughs> oh, it's good. No, I mean, I, I don't like the idea of Aerosmith just covering... No. Well, if that weirds you out, in 2003, they performed a song for the Rugrats Go Wild crossover. I remember this. Wizard Love what the fuck <laughs> no thank you someone at nickelodeon thought this was a good idea Th this is not a child band but i remember when that movie came out yeah and i remember the special but like why the fuck it's, that had to be nickelodeon's idea i don't think even steven is that creative no the drugs would not make him that creative no he was sober at this point um so that catches us up to 2004 they released their long-awaited pure blues album called honking on bobo i hate it i don't know what that's I, the name of the album it's the name of the album ew honking on bobo what what possesses them to make up these I names don't know. <laughs> i don't know they're the most random names i've ever heard in my life i don't know a good album terrible title in August 2006, Tom Hamilton announced that he was diagnosed with throat and lung cancer, nope, with throat and tongue cancer, and completed a seven-week course of radiation and chemotherapy, and this, because of this, he had to miss his first show ever. Up until Aww. this point, he had never missed an Aerosmith show. Well, he deserves to take off. That's incredible. And so, he had, uh, he had missed a couple shows, and uh, the bassist from the Joe Perry Project actually filled in. That's so nice. That's that's nice. His cancer actually did, did return in 2011, but he's now cancer free. So good, good, good for Tom. In 2008, Guitar Hero released their first ever like one band version, mm -hmm. Guitar Hero, Guitar Hero Aerosmith. There's since been like Green Day version, and like there's a Queen version. Yeah, uh, but they were the first. Wow. In 2009, it was rumored that Stephen was spending less and less time with the band, and that he was thinking about quitting. And they were like, you know, if he does, like, rumors start circulating. If he does quit, they're going to have Money Kravitz come do vocals. And, That'd like, be tight. It's going to be a whole thing. But um, turns out Steven was just in rehab again because he developed a painkiller addiction once he had two, two knee surgeries. So mm. thanks for that, America. Yeah. And your opiate That's tough, two knee. Oh, his, so uh, I didn't put this in here, but 
Today, his knees and feet are so messed up from his years of running back and forth on stage. Like his toes are actually curved inward from where he would like slide. Uh, he performs in Nikes now. He has to, yeah. He has to. Like his his feet are messed up. Um, but so he did. He was not leaving the band. Uh, we're gonna skip ahead a lot to more recently. In the meantime, the band does some solo work. They get older. Steven Tyler goes on American Idol back when it was still halfway decent. And there's they release several more albums. They've never really stopped making music this whole time, which I think is mm-hmm. pretty cool. Uh, in the early months of 2013. An act was enacted in Hawaii called the Steven Tyler Act, which I think is pretty cool. It gives privacy to public figures when they are on vacation. That's nice. What was the inspiration behind that? He was one of the, a bunch of celebrities banded together to like lobby for it, but he was one of the loudest figures. He's just tired of being stalked on vacation, which I don't blame him. Um, But I don't know if similar laws have been enacted in other places, but in Hawaii, if you were a public figure and the paparazzi is harassing you on vacation, you can sue them. That's nice. So good for them. You should have that right everywhere. But, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in 2016, Joe Perry actually collapsed on stage at a concert that he was doing with the Hollywood Vampires in Brooklyn. Oh, no. He had a heart attack and he was rushed to the hospital where he was quickly stabilized. Uh, the, the Hollywood Vampires finish that show without without joe on stage which that seems kind of like disrespectful yeah because he had a heart attack but whatever they kept going on tour without joe uh but after like three days joe made a full recovery and just jumped back on tour well you lived and that's how you know you're a touring musician for your life if you're like right you have a heart attack and you're out for like a week maybe in 2018 aerosmith went on to the today show to announce their residency in las vegas called aerosmith deuces are wild they that's their song which mm-hmm. was a great name for a vegas residency and this vet residency has been going kind of on and off like they'll announce a string of shows as like the last shows yeah they'll do them and then they'll like wait a couple months and be like more shows added right uh and it was going up until COVID hit i was lucky enough to catch the like the east coast run that they did at the mgm national harbor in august 2019 which is the point of the show where i tell you that i have touched steven tyler's hand really oh we were close on that show like they were breathing on us steven was sweating on us That's it was great. great um i think i touched all of their hands wow they're very they're very nice to the people like around the stage uh incredible show yeah first off we were extremely close shout out to my mother for buying those tickets <laughs> um but even at they're like in their 70s now you cannot tell by watching them perform like yeah they move a little bit slower because they're 70 but incredible show yeah. incredible playing i do have to laugh because steven does have a teleprompter with the lyrics does but he? the homeboy is old and his brain is not all there yeah. from drugs so like i can't blame him right the in 2019, they it was when the list of the Universal Fire losses came out. Oh. Uh, a bunch of Aerosmith masters were lost in that fire. That sucks. Do I just feel like I need to mention every time that comes up now? Yeah, it's like the Rolling Stone 500 Greatest Albums. Yeah. You mentioned that and you mentioned the Universal Fire. Because it's just crazy the amount of artists that were lost in that fire. This past September, they were supposed to do a 50th anniversary show at Fenway Park. But alas, COVID that's sad i hope they get to do it like 
if not this year, the next year. Yeah. Because their time is running out. Okay. That has caught us up to present day. Their legacy is like endless. They've inspired countless bands to go pick up that guitar. Uh, Eddie Van Halen actually told Steven Tyler at one point that Van Halen started out as an Aerosmith cover band. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty cool. To that see is really cool. How many bands have grown just imitating them? Um, Slash has stated that Aerosmith is his favorite band ever, and Nikki Six it, like really looks up to Steven Tyler as a person and a performer. Um, he's one of the ones that like inspired Nikki to get clean, actually. Oh, nice. And then I have some just random Joe Perry facts that I couldn't fit in anywhere else. That yeah. Just needs to be shared. Joe Perry has his own line of hot sauces. <laughs> yes. They're called Joe Perry's Rock Your World Hot Sauces. You can get a quesadilla f- featuring one of his hot sauces at the Hard Rock Cafe. Oh, I love it. Also, he has a collection of 600 guitars. Holy shit. Which is insane. You don't need that many. Um, and one particular guitar that I want to talk about is his 1959 Gibson Les Paul. He had to sell it during his divorce from Alyssa in 1982. And so later when he got like back on his feet and got money back, he had his guitar tech and the managers searched for this guitar because he wanted it back. It sold for a lot of money and they couldn't find anything. They couldn't find anything. And then one day someone brought a guitar magazine and laid it out and the middle of the centerfold was Slash holding that guitar (gasps) in his hand. Did Slash give it back? So Joe calls up Slash and bugged him for years. He offered to pay him triple the value that Slash bought it for. Like he wanted his guitar back. Um, And eventually it became such a like a point of contention because they're in the same circles and they they know the same people that he was like, he had to stop bugging Slash about it. Like it was causing strain on their friendship. So at Joe's 50th birthday party, Slash gave him the guitar back. Oh, how cute. <laughs> which is the sweetest thing. That's very cute. And that is the end of Aerosmith, which that I was feel like episode. was longer than I thought. They, like I said, that's one of the longest consistent careers we've covered. 50 years is a long time to make it music. Yeah. Um, so it's yeah. always hard when you have those really big ones. There's a lot. Thanks for listening to that whole episode, guys. If you made it this far and you're still here, because that was a long <laughs> one. Thank you for listening. Please leave us a review. You heard Leah. She explained all the science behind it, all the smart language behind it. So please do what she says and leave us a review. Thank you in advance. A special thanks to Death of Fawn for our intro riff. You can visit our website at shewillrockyou.com. Learn more about us. Learn our social handles. Go to our website. Other than that, don't do drugs. Don't do drugs.